Welcome to Life After Business, the podcast where your host, Ryan Tansom, brings you all the information you need to exit your company and explore what life can be like on the other side. Welcome back to the Life After Business podcast. This is episode 95. Did you start your company to purely make money? Well, that was Cami Greif's goal with her and her partners, why they started Tax Act, which was the third largest tax software underneath H&R Block and Intuit. They had a machine. It kicked out so much cash. And what they did over the years, in between tax season, trying to take the company to market, then tax season, and then recapitalizing with a private equity firm to then tax season, then taking on the Department of Justice in an antitrust lawsuit. Cami's story is amazing. They did so many things right and she walks us through the whole journey of all the twists and turns and what she was doing and why her and her partners had the intentions that they did. I'm unbelievably happy that Chris Yates from the Rhodium Weekend community introduced me to Cami because the moment that I heard her story, I couldn't wait to get it on the show and have everybody else hear what she had accomplished with her team. So without further ado, I really hope you enjoy this interview with Cami. This episode of Life After Business is brought to you by Solidity Financial's Growth and Exit Planning. Their proven process gives you clarity on all of your exit options and how those options impact your financial success, timing, and future happiness. Sell your company on your time frame to the right buyer at the price you want. Good morning, Cami. How are you doing? I'm doing great, Ryan. I'm uh, excited to have you on the show. We got introduced through a mutual friend and network we're in called Rhodium Weekend. And Chris Yates uh, thought we would be, uh, we would hit it off. And he was right. You and I had, I think it was like a half hour conversation that was scheduled and we ended up talking for about an hour and a half or something. And yeah, I think so. <laughs> and it was, uh, you have such an awesome story that I was excited that you were up for being on the show. So the listeners that had not been sitting in on that phone call, can you maybe go back and let's just kind of start from the, the beginning of your journey, Cammie, and explain the background of how you ended up becoming an entrepreneur and the different opportunities and the kind of variables that fell into place for you and your partners to kind of jump in together. Okay, sure. Well, I think first it's important to say that the company that I founded and eventually sold was called Tax Act, which is a tax software company and has a product that you can purchase and use online as well. But so, so that said, let me go back to the very beginning. It really started at a company called Parsons Technology, which um, was a company in the mid 80s um, that was started by the one and only Bob Parsons, who also started GoDaddy software. And uh, so I was working at Parsons Technology. I had, um, I have a CPA, I've got, I'm a certified public accountant, and I started at Parsons working on a development team. I was their domain expert and eventually became the development group leader, which um, at one point, Bob said, I really think you should be in marketing. So I went to marketing for a stint. And then he said, I think you should be in technical support. <laughs> and uh, and I'm thinking to myself, you know what? Technical I'm a CPA. <laughs> I'm a CPA. And I really enjoy the development side. And now you want me to do technical support. And um, But it was it was great. Bob, for whatever reason helped me move around to the company and see lots of different aspects 
which really helped me when we started the company later on down the road. But anyway, so in the, this was in the, uh, by the time I was in technical support, it was probably the mid nineties. And the big thing there was, so Parsons Technology had 60 different products, one of which was the personal tax edge, which was a tax software product. And basically the company ramped up for tax season and then had these 60 other companies that they sold to keep the, the customer base um, engaged with the company so that when tax season came around again, we had those customers ready to go. Mm-hmm. So with that, the technical support and the call centers had to ramp up and then um, kind of ease back down. And so that was really the challenge of why I went to the technical support, which was to really run that ramping up and down. Now, that all is kind of a background of how I was well-rounded, but what really was the key in technical support was we were answering customer questions through CompuServe and bulletin boards. So this was, remember, (laughs) a while ago, (laughs) way before the internet was really a thing, right? Um, And so I had a a group uh, in my technical support that was really kind of on the cusp of understanding online and and the internet as it was at that point. And the World Wide Web, WWW, kind of came (laughs) into play around that time. And and we sat down together and, and and my team said, we think we need to have a website. This was before most people had a website. So we put together a proposal, talked to Bob. Bob said, sure. And so then I ended up breaking off with that team and we started a development um, and marketing group for online. We had our, we did the first website. We also built our own e-commerce system in that group, um, including downloadable software. At that time, the only downloadable software really was Digital River um, up in Minnesota. But so we really were on the cusp. And so that gave me the experience of online. So then in 95, um, 1995, Bob Parsons sold Parsons Technology to Intuit, which is the maker of TurboTax, so direct competitor. At that time, Parsons was the number two product in the market. Intuit was number one. And so there was that merger that happened. Intuit ran the company for a couple of years. So by 97, they um, discontinued the tax or, or the um, personal tax edge product and sold all the rest of the company off to Broderbund, which at that time was um, known for the Reader Rabbit and a lot of other educational and creative type products. At that time, uh, our personal tax edge customers were left with the decision of moving to TurboTax or using TaxCut, which was eventually bought and, and um, converted to H&R Block's product. So we really, so then um, my other three partners, I have three partners, we all um, equal partners in the company. One was the VP of development, who is also a CPA and a really good tax guy. So I just want to throw out, even though I'm a CPA, I am not a tax person. That's the tax question. Um, and then there were two developers. One of the developers was our best. He was our master programmer at, at Parsons. The other one, um, another awesome programmer 
but he ended up moving into the online and was working side by side with me on some of the online pieces of the of the company. So the four of us got together and um, decided that we needed that there was this perfect storm happening for a, a tax product. And we ended up taking the leap of faith and left our jobs um, in February of 1998 and started Second Story Software, um, the makers of Tax Act. That was really kind of a leap of faith. Yeah, a huge leap of faith. And I, like, so when you're, you know, when you got, why those four people? Did you guys, was it different skill sets? Was there kind of a leader that was, how did you guys all come together? And then, you know, I think there's, there's so much, Cami, that happens when your people are starting these companies that comes, the, the challenges come after the fact, but you know, all equal partners, how do you make decisions, roles, responsibilities? Was there certain things that you guys cleared up while you guys were doing that? And then did everybody just kind of finance their own lives until uh, revenue started coming in? Yeah. So that, that I'm glad you brought that up. I, I kind of left that out of the story. Um, so originally it was Lance and our, our tax guy and the two programmers who had gotten together. And they also had a, a fourth person originally that was there. And so it would have been two tax guys and two, two programmers. And they had already kind of come to the conclusion that this was going to be a, a bit of a, you know, a challenge. We weren't, they weren't really thinking that they would go out for money. They were going to bootstrap it. And so they made the commitment that it would be two years, no pay. So, and eventually the one partner, one of the tax guys decided that that just was not in his, he DNA. just wasn't comfortable with that. <laughs> right. Yeah. It wasn't in his DNA. And so he dropped out. So the other three took a step back and said, okay, let's look at who are the people we need to have and what are the skill sets? So they had a tax person and, and being the VP of development really understood, you know, how, how development works and, and that whole piece also being a CPA. Um, he had also worked in public accounting. So he had seen startups and what worked with startups and what oh, cool. hadn't worked with startups. Yeah. And so, you know, really Lance really drove the, you know, the structure of the business and, you know, some of the parameters that we worked within. And, but anyway, so they looked at this and said, we really are missing the marketing and operations piece of this. And so knowing my history and what, what I had done at Parsons, they reached out to me and said, you know, we know we want to be online at, at, the, at this point, desktop products were still pretty, pretty popular. Mm -hmm. So we're going to start with a desktop product. That's where our skill set lies but we know we want to move online and you have all this online experience. So we want you to be a part of this. So it, so it then became the four of us. And um, like I said, equal partners, we had some of those parameters where we went for two years, no pay at the end of two years, we would sit down and decide what we were going to do. We also had the requirement that if any one of the four felt strongly that we should or should not, or that we should not do something basically, then we didn't do it. Oh, wow. And, you know, that's how strongly we respected each other. 
we respected each other's opinion and we never had that situation come up even throughout the whole journey and everything all the different things that i know we're going to get into some of them but that never came up that one person kind of helped like dug their heels in and you guys couldn't figure out a way to go through it no we didn't super cool it really was one for all and all for one what are some of the things that you guys did in order to make that work because there's so many partnership i mean actually one of my (laughs) I've had a couple of these interesting interviews where one that was a similar situation, lots of people and an amazing uh, collaboration. Another one where it was just like the worst nightmare story. And so how how did, was there certain things that you guys did to communicate? And yeah, there, there was first off, all of us had worked together at Parsons and had seen each other's work ethic. Right. And I'm pretty proud that all four of us had very good work ethics. And there was never a time where, any one of us felt like you're not putting in the time or you're not doing what you need to do. In fact, in our operating agreement in our original shareholder agreement, we had a clause that if three of the four felt that one was not pulling their weight, we could vote them out and they would lose their shares. Oh, wow. Like not even like pay them out, like totally oust them. Yes. Whoa. (laughs) Yes. So that, you know, and we, we would joke every once in a while about <laughs> pulling that, pulling that out, but, but no, we, we were, we all respected each other a great deal. Now, the funny thing is, is Jerry and the, I'm sorry, the master programmer and I, Jerry, never, didn't really know each other before we started this. So I had worked with the other two, but I hadn't worked with him one on one. So it was it was interesting, you know, but our mutual respect from hearing how the other one works and then starting to work with them just grew tremendously. And so we we never had that issue. Now, that's not to say we didn't have disagreements right, and we right, didn't right. say, you know, I don't think that's the right way to do it, but we communicated. The other thing that we did was we always had our offices close together. So it wasn't a situation where, you know, marketing was in one end of the building and development was in the other. We, the, the four of us always had our offices right next to each other um, so that we would have impromptu meetings all the time. And if one person was talking to another, we usually d- stood in doorways to have our conversations. So is you're having that conversation, the other two, if two people are having a conversation, the other two could hear what was going on and say, you know what, that could affect me. I better get in on that conversation. And we would just go in and then, and by the end, all four of us would be sitting in one office communicating. That's awesome. That's awesome. So So I think of all the pieces, that is probably one of the strengths that we had that carried us through. That's super cool. And I know it's very unique and it, it, well, and it takes a lot of work too. And so let's, in terms of like the strategic vision and stuff like that, what was the, with all four of you guys pretty much on the same page and different skill sets, what were some of the main milestones and strategic things that you guys were trying to accomplish? And what were some of the ones that you actually checked off the box? Well, uh, first off, we got into this thinking that we might be a thorn and into its side and get bought out in a year or two, take, you know, put some work in, work a year or two, 
get an offer, maybe to pocket a million bucks or so, and then we'd be on to the next thing, right? Well, 14 years later, when we finally <laughs> sold the company, that didn't happen. I mean, that original plan didn't happen, but we did always run the company with a uh, profit in mind. We wanted to bootstrap and we wanted to be profitable. So if it didn't work out that Intuit would come in in a year or two and take us over, that we had built a strong, profitable company that eventually would be um, of interest down the road. And that's really a, a big question. In fact, I was just on a call yesterday. I sit on a board of a startup that I'm, I'm invested in. And we had that exact conversation because in their situation, they are not bootstrapping. They are going out and raising funds and trying to make that decision of when do you push that pedal down? And are you trying to be a profitable company or are you trying to be a growth company? And it's a fundamental question that businesses have to ask themselves. Can you, can you peel that back a little bit further? Because I think that you just nailed something that is so like ambiguous out in the marketplace where there's all these people raising money, you got the show Silicon Valley, you got all this stuff where people are raising money. And that's so, I think you, you articulated very interesting. Are you trying to grow or are you trying to be a profitable company? Just explain how that will impact your decisions of what you're doing with your business. Well, I think that, you know, in our situation, it meant that we didn't spend money on a lot of things. We worked our first offices. We had three different offices um, over the period of time. So we moved twice. The first office, was in an old mortuary. We were on the second floor <laughs> of this old mortuary. And I tell you what, those ceilings on the first floor must have been 20 feet tall because that line, that steps up those, <laughs> up to that second floor was a workout. And, uh, and there were caskets in the basement still left over from, because the mortuary still owned the building, but they had rented it out. So, you know, these were really humble beginnings. And we, bought $25 desks from on a, at a secondhand place. Everybody brought their own computer and we just did everything on the cheap. If you walked in, there would be nothing but family photos on the walls. It, you know, we just, we didn't spend money to spend money and be flashy. We um, were working hard and wanted to be profitable and we worked a lot of hours and could we have hired more people? Um, probably not without cash, but, um, but yes, we could have used those people very easily. So, you know, when you look at that and you try to run it on the cheap, you may not be growing quite as fast. You're not going to be running as many ads. You're not going to be, you know, if you're a B2B, you're not hiring as many salespeople, but you're a profitable company. And, and it really depends on what you're looking for versus the, you know, looking at trying to grow and you don't care if you're profitable or not. It's all about the number of customers that you gain and how fast you gain them. And, and it's, a, it's a question you have to ask yourself because there are buyers in both buckets. Well, and okay, so there's a couple of things I want to peel apart into this because I think it uh, it's a good context for a couple of other um, steps in your journey. And I think it's something that a lot of people struggle with, Cami, where, you know, but 
the biggest takeaway that I'm hearing, so you started with the end in mind. You wanted to sell your business and you, well, you had a bunch of CPAs and developers that were looking at profit. And I think there's so many entrepreneurs that don't run the business to sell it. So even though you were looking at into it, you were trying to be profitable and explain that, you know, even if you do, even if you pick one of those different things, explain when you said there's buyers for both, what would, you know, what impacts the different types of buyers and like how that would make a, how that would impact the decision of how they're growing. Okay. I want to step back um, on one, one thing before mm-hmm. I go there yeah. and you might have to remind me of where I'm going, but um, the thing I want to step back on is even if you're not looking to sell, even if you're looking at this as a lifestyle business and you want to pass this down to your children, what better way to do that than to have a profitable company and have <laughs> a nice cash flow coming in your pocket, right? So, so there are some benefits there. But you wanted me to talk a little bit more about um, the different types of buyers, right? Well, and and like you know, I the, yeah, the, you know, just shedding some light on the different types of buyers, but then also like you know, your guys I, maybe not even necessarily that, but like your mindset on you wanted to sell the business and you didn't know necessarily when it took you fourteen years, but you were building it to sell it, and you know. How were you? How what was the dialogue between you and your team? Was it landscape? What's happened to landscape? Were you always talking about buyers and the profit? What were the main things that were driving the direction in the dialogue? Well, I think after after Intuit didn't buy us after the first year um, or second year, we kind of settled in and said, okay, well, our our quick flip isn't going to happen. So, what do we need to do here to grow the business to get it to a point? where we might have a little more interest from Intuit or Block or some other strategic partner, right? So at that time, so this was in 1998 when we started the company. We went through the 2000 bubble and we're on the other side of 2000 and you've got a lot of players battling it out, um, namely like a Yahoo, Google, Microsoft, all trying to figure out where they're going to be. In fact, Microsoft, even um, a lot of people don't know this, but they came out with an online tax product in about 2001 or two that <laughs> flopped. And I can tell you why they flopped, because Microsoft is notorious for, or at least at that time, for kicking the release date down the road, kicking that can down the road. Mm-hmm. With tax, you can't do that. If you don't have that product ready to go, when tax season starts January 15th, when the IRS starts taking e-files, you're sunk. It's, mm-hmm. a, it's a very commoditized product. And if you're not ready, there's another product that will be, and people will move to it because they want their tax refund as fast as possible. Right, right. So anyway, so back to the landscape. There's all these companies that are trying to figure out where they're headed, and they're all about customers, right? And number of customers and growing that piece of it. So after we got through the 2000 bubble, we really sat down and said, okay, we're going to need to grow this if we're going to sell the company. How are we going to do that? And so we really kind of focused, we still kept the profit margin in, in mind, and that was still forefront, but we started looking at how can we grow it? So in 2000, we added the online. So 98, 99, we had desktop. In 2000, we added the online and then just really started focusing hard on growing that online business. 
So does that answer your question? Yeah, yeah, it does. No, I think it's just really interesting because you're, I, you know, thinking about the buyer's landscape, thinking about who would potentially buy you, I think is an, a constantly a good exercise. And a lot of people don't take the head out of the sands to think about that stuff because it impacts the strategic decisions that you're doing. And so was, you mentioned that acquiring customers, the online, and I know there's some other interesting things that you guys did. Was that, all, and it, those decisions were, it sounds like they were precipitated because you knew eventually you wanted to sell this to certain people. Yeah, there was no question that we were going to sell the company. We were not building this for our children and grandchildren. This was um, the four of us set out to um, make some money and, you know, and maybe people think that's being very greedy, but um, that was that was our plan. And that's what we wanted to do. Um, so how did the online play help? Was it acquiring customers? Was it acquiring more profit? Um, and then I know there was a, and I don't know exactly where in the, the journey that you started getting knocks on the door or you went out and sought, sought out the private equity. You know, what were some of the, the steps in that um, part of the process? Yeah. So, um, so in about 2002, we, you know, through different partnerships and advertising that I was doing, I got a, I had a few people reach out to us saying, you know, why don't you come and talk to us? And maybe there's some sort of synergies and partnerships and, you know, all of that that we can do. And it got us thinking that, yeah, maybe now is, is a time to go ahead and um, start to look at selling the company. And so we reached out to an investment broker, um, just a, a small regional um, investment broker, and started going through the through the steps to take the company up for sale. And we ended up um, that we ended up, I think it was probably 2002 when we did our first process. So when I call, talk about the process, basically you get your investment banker. Um, they do a bit of due diligence on you, write up a, a, a deck so that they can send it out. And then um, if you get any, and then there's interviews and presentations. And if you finally get to somebody, then a definitive agreement, then you have your due diligence process that you're going to go through. So we started um, with... Um, getting some some of our information together and a proposal and sent it out. And the the thing about tax is you are so busy from about November till <laughs> April, you can't pull your head out of the sand. And then April 15th hits and you need about two weeks to just detox. And then you got to get your financials together. So by the time you can really start a process in earnest is about June 1. Mm-hmm. Then summer is never good for investment banking. Um, and so really it doesn't kick off in earnest until about um, August when kids go back to school. And then you got like three months. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. And then we have to shut it down. So it took a couple years before we were able to really get something in place. And we had a lot, you know, a lot of different people looked at it. We sent it out to um, a lot of strategics as well as private equity and it turned out in late 2004 we ended up selling to a private equity firm called TA Associates out of I think Boston and Menlo Park are their main areas and we we ended up selling a majority interest to them 
And that really set the stage for us to basically take some chips off the table. With tax, you have that very short selling season. So it's not like if something doesn't quite go right, you can make a lot of adjustments and you got the rest of the year to make up for it. This is if you aren't going in with all cylinders running um, at top speed at the beginning of tax season, you can make a few tweaks, but whatever your plan is, you pretty much have to stick to it for the, for the season and make or break. So we felt like we were playing Texas Hold'em all in every year. <laughs> and, um, and that was stressful. So it was nice to be able to take some of those chips off the table, put it in our pockets, and continue to run the business. So the process that you went through, uh, curious as the dialogue with your you and your partners, when you, so strategics versus private equity, all these different buyers have different intentions and there's different terms and conditions and how, like, so when you guys were thinking about, quote unquote, you know, taking it to market with the investment banker, were you guys like, we all want to walk? Did everybody have different intentions? Was there certain dollar amounts that everybody wanted? I mean, I just think there's, a lot of that, a lot of entrepreneurs don't know what they don't know or don't know what they want. So all those different things that you saw result in different outcomes. So how did you guys work through that? And did you learn through the process or did you have intentions when you're doing it? Well, keep in mind, we had, we, we did this for, for several, you know, to, I, you know what, it, it, it's getting so long ago. It's hard for me to remember exactly, but two or three years that we went through a, a process and each year, our price kept going up because our, our revenues and bottom line were growing up, were going up as well. So our expectations, maybe the first couple of years were a little bit, you know, maybe a little high. We also, okay, so the other thing that happened, so the first year, nothing, it must have been three years. The first year, nothing happened. The second year, we actually had an offer from TA, but we were, it was a minority interest. And the problem that we saw is we were an S-Corp company and we were taking really nice S-Corp distributions. And with going to TA, which was a private equity, we would have had to convert to a C-Corp. So mm -hmm. we would have lost those nice S-Corp distributions. And for the price they were paying and the fact that we would lose our S-Corp distributions, we just, we said no. And this was late in 2003. And we just said, we can't do this. So we shut down the process and everybody went their separate ways. In 2004, we went back out for the process and talked to other people again. And, uh, and then ended up settling on TA. But we went back to them and said, we want a, mind, a majority interest because if we're going to lose these S-Corp distributions, we want to make it worth our while to do this, this transaction. So that's all stuff that you really mm -hmm. have to kind of think about is sit down and what is that cash flow, not only for your company, but what's that cash flow into you as an owner and what's going to happen with some of those, some different types of transactions. Now, the other thing with private equity that people have to remember is private equity will sell your company. Your company will be sold again. There's no getting around that. <laughs> so it's a situation where they have funds and they have to close these funds out, which means they have to sell that com your company in five to 10 years, typically. So that, that's another piece that whoever the people you are, you have coming into your company as part of this TA or as part of this private equity, 
they're temporary, really, that you're going to have somebody else in the end. Well, and that's if you stick around till the end. Um, I think there's a lot of people that struggle with, you know, maybe choosing the wrong private equity because they didn't do their due diligence on management style, the people, you know, all that kind of stuff. You know, did you guys do some due diligence on them? Because again, those, you know, that scenario that you structured is so different than selling to a strategic where you guys might all walk away right away. And so did you guys all want to stay in the business and continue working? And, and how did you end up picking TA compared to some other people? Well, primarily TA gave us the best price, right? Um, so that's always a factor. But the other was we, before we actually signed on the dotted line, we, we did do some reference checking. So we checked with some of the people that had that TA had purchased before. Now, I'm, I think you and I had a little bit of this conversation where you suggested, you know, even talking to people that had sold after and we right, did not right. do that, but that is a great suggestion that not only talk to the people that they may give you as references, but also talk to people who have gone who have been bought and then sold who can who, who can liberally talk crap to about someone and not have a payment get pulled <laughs> exactly exactly yeah so you so to kind of continue the journey then did you did you guys all want to stay on like you guys all still had energy and passion for the business or did were you kind of up in the air and because now that you, you mentioned, you know, five to 10 years and you, and we'll kind of walk through how you guys ended up getting sold again, but where were all your, all the four of the partners heads at as far as enjoying the industry and the business? Well, we all said, you know, we'll stay for a couple years um, as long as it's fun. I mean, that was our, our attitude and that was our response back to TA is we're not walking, we're sticking around. Besides we still, I mean, the company was, you know, a nice size company. And there was still, we still had ownership and risk if we walked away. So we wanted to ensure our investment was going to continue on. And so we stuck around and we ended up, I mean, all of us stayed until we sold in 2012. I was the only one that actually walked in 2012. The other three stuck around longer. So they obviously really enjoyed it. What, you know, as far as benchmarks or, you know, amount of employees or whatever you're willing to disclose around the time of the private equity. And then, so that was in 2004, you said, so they held it for what? Yeah. So they held it for eight years. Yes. Wow. That's a little bit longer than normal, huh? It is. It is. And you know what? I wish I could tell you how many employees and what the revenues were at that time, but I just can't remember. Well, that's what we'll just totally fine because what maybe going into the next eight years, you know, what was for you guys to all do that for eight years and you guys had my, so they came in with majority and they were, so they were the final decision maker and all the strategic plans and all the stuff where the, where additional funds were getting invested. Um, Actually. So, so I just want to make a couple things clear and, and I'm, I'll guess around where we were. We were probably around 20, 25 million in revenue. We probably had about, oh, I don't know, 30 employees roughly is probably 30 or 40 is where we probably were at at that time. But as far as TA, so they made an investment and that cash came to the owners. Got it. That, that didn't go into the company that came to the owners because they were buying our stock. And, but for moving forward, they really were hands off. Now we were growing, we were profitable, 
And so, you know, things were usually pretty good, except for actually the first year. And I'll go back to that. But they were fairly hands off. They did want us to hire a CFO because um, Lance and I were basically sharing the CFO position and they wanted someone in that position. And they got a little pushy on wanting us to hire somebody outside of Cedar Rapids. Our, our company's in Cedar Rapids, Iowa, and they wanted East Coast, West Coast talent. And we interviewed and we went down that path. And in the end, we ended up hiring somebody that we had worked with at Parsons Technology as our CFO. That's awesome. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, they and they also wanted us to use a high-powered PR firm, which never really worked out. And, you know, just some of those kinds of things where we ended up spending more money than we normally would have. But they kind of wanted some of those those pieces done. And so we... We got it. But so the the rest of the stuff, I mean, you guys just kept on your growth path and the strategic path that you guys had already been doing. Yes, we really did. It was pretty much um, keep moving forward. Now, I had mentioned that there was somewhat of a challenge that first year, and that came in um, with one of our competitors was also looking hard at the company as a strategic buyer. And as hard as we tried to keep our information um, close to the vest and not sharing, they ended up getting a key piece of information on our marketing that they thought would put us under. And it nearly did, actually. And it was all centered around the Free File Alliance, which is a government alliance with industry. If you want to know more about the Free File Alliance, you can check it out. But needless to say, we were making some, we had to present an offer to customers for free e-filing on the irs.gov website. And those offers could vary. And each company of the 20 companies that offered tax software at the time back in 2003 and 4 and 5 would make their offer. Most of them were offering free e-filing to com- to consumers who had a uh, adjusted gross income of 35,000 or less. We were we started on the higher end and then ended up saying free for everyone. Well, that free for everyone grew our market share on the irs.gov website, which our competitor saw that and then decided that they would do free for everyone. Oh jeez. Yes. And so that eventually, that first year, they came out free for for everyone on the irs.gov website, which slowed our growth on the irs.gov website. So that first year that we were owned by or had TA investment, our growth wasn't what what it had been. And so it really caused us all to reflect and say, what can we do differently? Well, Basically, we were building the brand on the irs.gov website versus our own brand because we were making that offer. So we decided to do that that free e-filing on our website. And um, that, that move right there, number one, it would have been difficult if we hadn't already taken money off the table. Right. If we didn't have the TA investment, it would have been difficult for us to do that. because In, we, in what way? Because we were charging for that e-filing on our website, 
and it was not an insignificant amount of revenue. Got it. So when we made that choice, we, we ran the risk of losing that revenue, but we made it up with more customers and more cross-sell and upsell revenue because it was free for the federal and then you paid for your state or you paid to upgrade to a deluxe version. Did TA have any issues with that? You know what? They, we, we ran the numbers and we showed them what we thought it would be. And they, they understood that competition is a challenge and that when you're going up against Intuit and, and H&R Block, you've got two really big companies that have deep pockets and you need to be a bit scrappy and try something different. And they, they understood that and they gave us the freedom to do it. So between them saying, yes, go ahead, and the four of us feeling like we should do this, and there's not as much risk for us because we've taken some off the table. So it was a win-win for both in that respect. Um, and it also was a win for the company because that next year when we did that, we grew. We didn't quite double, but we grew nearly wow. double on our, <laughs> on our market share and stole Tons of market share from Intuit. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you started getting that thorn jammed in to the side like you wanted to. Was yes. There, was, yes, we were you still guys? Because I know there's a, like a lot of this going on in the marketplace now with the the SaaS products and all these different other things. Um, Amazon being a huge um, example of give certain things away and then make money on the back end. You know, were you guys able to maintain the profit, maintain the profitability as you're giving away free e-filing? Because I think there's a lot of companies that you know they wouldn't do what you guys did because the, a they don't have the private equity firm or they're they're too used to the cash flow or whatever it might be, and they they choose the slow death versus innovating. So were you able to manage and balance the growth with the profitability? Yes, we were, and and you know I think you anybody who's trying to make that decision really just has to run the numbers. And it, it's all in what are your conversion rates when you start looking at going from your free product to your paid? Is your paid product enough better or is there some hook that's really going to make a difference? For us, our deluxe, we included uh, importing from prior year. So that was something that people... So when we looked at tax, they would start with our free version year one. But by year two, a, a, a sizable amount of them would upgrade to deluxe because of that import. But at some point in their life, something's going to change. Some life event is going to happen that's going to cause them to second guess and say, I think I need a little bit more guidance in the deluxe that's available in the deluxe product, which we had a whole section on life events and how do you handle these life events that gave the people the confidence. Now, could you do all of the same forms and everything else in this in our free version as our paid yes you could at that time i think now the new owners have changed some of that but at that time it was exactly the same forms in both products and you were able but you had more help and so that's the kind of thing that you have to think about is what are these hooks and what is going to cause somebody to upgrade and cross sell and what are those conversion rates and if they're pretty good you know it served us very well. So I'm a proponent of it. And did you, in that, you know, as you're talking about building a valuable business and you, these different offerings that you have in the cross selling, did, 
I, I know. I don't. I doubt in your space there's you know contracts, but I'm I'm assuming the repeat customers was a metric that you guys measured. Did you guys have stats on like how many people were repeat and um and that stayed with you guys or upgraded? Yes, and it was it would it's surprisingly low for first year, and and we got better at it. I think you know early on it was about fifty percent of first year would come back the second year. But but we improved that to well over sixty percent, I in around there. Wow! But if you looked at so I'm thinking, you know, I'm going back in my mind to maybe around two thousand, I don't know, five or six statistics. If you came in and it was about fifty five percent from year one to year two, the year two to year three was better. Year three to year four was even better. By the time you got to about year five or six, you're at ninety five percent. Wow. Yeah. So it's just the more they use the same product, the much better retention rate you have. So as you guys are, you know, in this eight year journey, um, was there, what was the conversations like with TA, you know, knowing that that's the goal is to sell the company again. Um, and you're constantly looking at the marketplace as things are changing and Intuit's out there and TurboTax and all that stuff. What was the end goal and how often did you talk about it? And I know there was a couple interesting hiccups along the way that I'd love for you to, to dive into. Sure. Um, so basically, we talked about it every year. Every year at the end of tax season, we would say, is this a good year to sell or not? And we ended up pitching the company probably another four or five years at, at, you know, at different times. So we... And I probably should have sat down and thought through this a little more on, on the whole history before we had this call. But in my, you know, aging recollection here, I would say we probably waited a couple years and then started pitching the company again. And we went out to strategics. And sometimes we would do a very big, broad, um, overreaching, send it to everybody and their brother. Um, and then sometime, and then other years we would say, no, just send it to a handful. And if we get some, some interest out of those handful, then maybe we'll broaden it a little bit more. Hmm. Uh, but as it turned, and so that, and that, let me just say, when you do start a process of, of selling your company, that takes a lot of time. <laughs> I tell it, it takes a lot of time. And it's not something to go into lightly and you need to make sure that your business can, can continue on even though you're in a process. And that's a challenge that I don't think a lot of people think about. You know, they think, oh, well, it's time to sell the company. Let's start a process. Well, that process is going to suck a lot of your time. So I think that's a really good point because uh, I've had a couple other uh, people that have mentioned that. And they did not have a private equity back, you know, uh, additional partner strategic help. So they would like, uh, they divided and conquered du duties, whether it was doing the process versus like doing ops. How did you guys do that? Did you have additional help with TA um, along those lines? And did they bring other preferred advisors to the table? And how did that whole structure work with you guys as a team and the TA team? Well, the TA team did bring some help, right? So they helped in, in some of the early stages. They also helped us select investment bankers. We basically were using the investment bankers that they wanted to use, um, which changed. 
So every time you change an investment banker, you're having to re-educate those investment <laughs> right. bankers, right? So that takes time. Um, and then the investment bankers usually provide some additional help on some analysis and how to present, and they really put the deck together for you. But yes, those are all things to think about. And for us, we really sheltered the rest of the company, and the four of us primarily did most of the pitching of the company. It then be in the in the last few years, it became very clear to us that if the four of us were not highly committed to staying, that we probably were doing a disservice by doing all of the presentations ourselves. So then we started bringing in a couple from the, the next layer that were going to backfill us uh. as part of our succession planning, that they started helping out with and, and doing some of those um, presentations. And, and in fact, the last year, I think I was involved only on the back end and not any face forward um, presentations. And so that's another consideration to think yeah, about. Yeah. If you're yeah, not yeah. planning on sticking around, you better get your next level of management in front and center of anybody that you're pitching your company to, because they're the ones that are going to have to develop the relationship. So uh, along those lines, um, did you guys... Because the moment, I mean, everybody, I, th I think a lot of entrepreneurs freak out because they're like, well, they're going to want some of the pie. And how do you deal with that? So was there, you know, phantom stock agreements or deferred comp or stay bonuses or equity or, you know, how did you guys structure that to get them jazzed about what you guys are doing? Mm. All along, we, when we, and we, when we originally started, we set 12% of the company off to the side for our employees. So the employees that were helping us out had a vested interest some of it was phantom stock some of it was stock options those you know variety of things but they were incented to do that um and i think we may have even um offered a small bonus you know if we got the the deal done but it was primarily the stock that was the driver got it so um a lot with with TA with I'm just kind of going back a couple of steps. Um, is was what was their portfolio like? Was there any strategic buyers that they knew that they wanted to sell it to? Or was it just for the cash flow? Or was there any other strategic things that they were doing with your guys' company? It was primarily the cash flow. Okay, it really was, and I think that they thought that they could grow it, and that we had some very viable strategic partners especially into it in block as well as other you know like i said at that at that time in 2004 when we were selling you had a lot of big players that were trying to figure out what they were going to do and we had um had some of those looking at us they didn't choose to at that time to make an investment but so i think TA saw that there was not only the profit margin, but some real clear strategic partners or strategic buyers that could happen in the next. And you had an interesting uh, first failed round of a strategic buyer, didn't you? Yes, we did. In 2011, we actually had a definitive agreement with H&R Block to buy Tax Act. And there are some parameters that make a determination, but depending on these parameters you may have to go um in front of the department of justice and or and or the federal trade commission to determine if there's anti-competitive 
behavior or the potential for anti-competitive behavior. And that is called HFR, which is short for Hart-Scott-Rodini Act. And we were subject to that. Um, primarily, usually some of the parameters are the price as well as publicly traded companies get involved, et cetera. But anyway, we were subject to that and the Department of Justice took exception to our transaction. There are several steps that you have to go through and I won't go into detail, but it <laughs> kind of goes back and forth on, we supply them with the Department of Justice with information and they ask for more information, decide if they're gonna move it on. Well, it ended up moving all the way to the end where the Department of Justice said, no, you are anti-competitive, you cannot do this transaction. Now, at that time, Intuit was number one, was about 70% of the online market. We had 15, Block had 13, and the rest was about, you know, the other couple percent. So we were, number three was buying number two. And they still, and Intuit clearly had the majority, but they felt that that was not good for the consumers. So when they say no, they basically put an injunction on your transaction. And if you can still think that this is a go and you want to do it, then you have to go to court. So we talked to our attorneys, Block talked to theirs, and we all thought that it had some legs. So we fought it and went to federal court in D.C. and up against the Department of Justice, and we lost. So millions, and I mean millions of dollars of attorney's fees later, here we are sitting with no transaction, no deal. Just, I mean, what was the, what was your guys' stress level when that was going on? Quite high because, you know, there were depositions, there was sitting on the stand answering questions. It, it was very, very stressful. So, Cami, I think when you said that a lot of people re don't realize that when they go to, into the process of trying to sell their company, that it takes a lot of time. I don't think that most people are thinking that they're going to take the uh, Department of Justice to federal court when that as part of that process. So, no, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> so, how? I mean, how were, was the company running like on its own? Were you guys kind of more just shareholders at that point to be able to manage that? Well, the four of us still went to the office every day and we still had some direct reports, but we had awesome direct reports that were really part of our succession planning that we had started putting in place with TA's assistance, right? TA was really pushing, you need the CFO and do you have people in place behind you? So, you know, from that perspective, they really encouraged that succession planning. and. When we were going through these the the HSR issues, we we felt confident that we had good people in place to to run it. Now we still kept a pulse on it, and we still, you know, like I said, we're going into the office every day. But really, our conversations in the doorways at that point in time were primarily centered around the lawsuit rather than what was happening in the company. To be honest, so when the when the uh, lawsuit when you got the final verdict, um, what was the next step? And then how long was it before you guys took it to market again and sold it? Well, that was late in 2011. So it was, you know what, stand up, you know, 
put your game face on. We're heading into another tax season. So <laughs> oh my gosh. We, we didn't really have a lot of time to analyze it um, or think about it. So it was okay. That's just one more thing that has happened, one more piece of our journey, and we move forward. And then the next year, you know, starting in May, June, we put the company back up for sale and then um, ended up selling to InfoSpace at the end of 20, or actually, you know what, I have my years wrong. It was 2010 and then 2011 because we closed with InfoSpace January of 2012. And they were in InfoSpace, what kind of, and they're a public company, right? Uh, yes. And they have since changed their name to Blue Cora. Blue Cora. And what was the, how did that whole, well, first of all, what was it like selling to a public company versus private equity? I mean, that's got to be extremely different. Uh, it, it was a bit different. Not Actually, probably not a ton. The amount of due diligence that we needed to do wasn't that different um, than what we had done with with uh, TA or with, with Block, but there again, Block's a publicly traded company. Right. So um, when you guys restructure oh, well, on the transaction, did you guys have to have, you know, have stock invested into the public company? Um, Cause there was a, um, a woman on the show here that she said, she said exiting a public company was harder than exiting the first time. <laughs> so um, I don't, was there any kind of, how, how was the deal structured for you, for the, you as the owners? Was it just totally walk away or did you guys have to have uh, reinvested um, shares? It was all cash. Well, that makes it easy. Yes, it was. <laughs> now, my partners that stayed on ended up having some employment agreements that would have, you know, there was options for, you know, for some of the, oh, actually, I think all, um, some of the employees or all the employees, I'm not exactly sure. But as far as having to have any piece of the company tied up in their stock, we did not have to do that. Was there any reasons that you could pinpoint of why there was an all cash offer? Because I think the, in the, the context of my question is that the, you've probably seen it, especially with the PE route, they, like there's a spectrum like, hey, here's the dollar amount, but you don't get any of it. And here's all the terms, conditions, employment agreements, stock options, that stuff. Was there certain things that you were doing in the business that were so well, which is why you got the all cash? Well, you know what? I'm not exactly sure. I would venture to say that this was what, well, first off, it was what we wanted as the founders, but I also would venture to say that TA was behind wanting it all cash, that for their fund, they couldn't reinvest into a publicly traded company. Got it. Oh, I, yeah. I think that's probably more of it than anything. And I, yeah, I know for dis, uh, disclosure purposes, I'm just kind of curious between the the eight years between the the TA purchase and that, what what was kind of the growth or any kind of numbers or benchmarks that you're willing to disclose? Well, you know, when we sold, we were roughly seventy ish, seventy seventy five million dollar company, and um, and when we had, and then so when we were with when we were sold to TA, I'm thinking it was about a 20 to $25 million company. So we saw some pretty significant growth in that eight years. That's amazing. And I, and the, we, we, along those eight years, were you able to continue hitting the profit margins that you wanted along those ways? 
We did. It went down slightly after we sold to TA, but that was primarily because they were encouraging us to start building in this next layer, right? Mm-hmm. And really see, put in place some succession planning. So it went down slightly, but, you know, roughly we were pretty, we were a very profitable company. And the the nice thing is that we were able to bootstrap from the beginning. So it was it was a, a a nice business for TA to buy. When uh when inf uh, was it info space info space when they bought it was it a multiple of EBITDA or was it multiple of revenue or client? I mean, what were some of the metrics that they used to value the business? Um, they did use a, a multiple on. Uh, you know what? You're really stretching my memory here. I'm thinking it was a multiple of revenue. That's interesting because I think there's just so many other ways to value companies these days. And when you get into the software space too, there's a lot, you see a lot more of the multiples of revenue versus of cash, which is just interesting because you just don't know, like that's how different offers can be. Yeah. And you know what? Now that I'm I'm sitting here trying to figure this I'm thinking it was probably more multiple on um, on EBITDA. Was there anything? So, so you walked away after you sold. Um, were you? I mean, I, as you probably were thinking about it, because that's why you're bringing some of the key employees back in. What was planned for the next chapter for you? I mean, did you just that was it, and you handed in the keys after the purchase agreement were signed, or uh, you know, how did you feel when you inked the deal? Well, I didn't walk away until I got the cash. Um, Good choice. Good choice. (laughs) But my decision was, you know, I it'd been 14 years, and I basically was burnt out. I mean, there's no way other way to say it, but I was burnt out. And I also was looking at my first grandchild being born in um in six months after I walked. And it was just kind of a transitional period in my life where I just needed to be my own person and not the tax act co-founder for a little while. And so what I ended up doing is I, we had, my husband and I had short, had um, recently moved back to my hometown and uh, we we both were farm kids and my husband farmed when we were first married and then left for me to pursue my career and, and my passions. And so we came back and he went back to farming and I have just really been much more focused on giving back. And I helped build a building. I general contracted a building in town for youth development and and. I just really am more about giving back right now than anything else. Although I really do miss the people and I miss some of the, you know, watching the numbers and making changes and seeing how that affects from a marketing standpoint. Well, I think you and I were talking, it's, it's the game, right? I mean, you, you guys ran one hell of a company and the profits and the numbers and you got to see feedback and how well you're doing. And I mean, is there, is there ways that you're, you know, able to get that get that fix these days or i I do have a couple different ways one is i do a lot of mentoring of startups and there's a an iowa startup accelerator not too far from where i live that i do spend quite a bit of time down there mentoring 
those startups. I also um, have, have, it's become kind of a hobby of mine to look at companies for sale on a variety of websites, you know, for the companies that are in sort of the half million to a million EBITDA and just really kind of drill in and, and look at the numbers. And so I get a little bit of that fix. We should, uh, we should throw on a different episode, like down the road where you and I like go pick a couple of companies and financials. Cause I think it's so interesting. Like when these entrepreneurs that haven't sold before to go look at the numbers, cause you're looking at from a buyer's perspective is so interesting. And I, it, it almost be fun to just hear your commentary as you're looking through them about what you're thinking, what they're doing right, wrong, and all that kind of stuff. Cause it's amazing how, how uh, doing that just gives you a totally different perspective. I think that would be a lot of fun. And I also, you know, what would be maybe fun too is to do another segment from what the seller is thinking. Because, you know, I'm a CPA, so I am very, as much as I want to get excited about my numbers are awesome, I also understand patterns and and um, trends. And I don't know if all sellers understand those that for me, I really look at trends. And if I see a downtrend, there better be a good explanation or I move on to the next. Isn't it funny? I, there, was a, <laughs> there was this one that I saw and it was like three years of slightly downtrending and then the projections were obviously trending upward. <laughs> it's like, yeah. come on. And like, really? Who's going to believe that? <laughs> right, right. But but you know, maybe they have some really good answer. Maybe there's a new product that's being released, or maybe I don't know. There's, there's some so many things, new right? regulation that's coming out that's going to like totally flip their business upside down. And those are the kinds of things that you know, maybe maybe being hardcore just looking at those trends isn't fair. But I I don't know. But I, I think it's know. I think it'd be no. interesting. And I think you you know what you've done such a good job as is looking at the marketplace and knowing where your business could potentially be sold to and why. And it's always, and those will help you connect the dots for the trends too, because you understanding how everything is interwoven. Yeah. I'd like to believe that that's the case. <laughs> <laughs> so Cami, as, as we're wrapping up here, you know, I, I, I loved the, the whole story of the journey and everything, you know, is there one thing uh, along that way that you that we talked about that you want to highlight for the listeners or maybe something that we that we missed that you want to leave them with you know what starting a company and then taking it to a sale is it is a thrilling ride there's every day there's ups and downs and let me just say it is worth it in the end yeah i i i really wouldn't have given that up for anything I love it. I think that's a, a, a awesome nugget to leave everybody with. If there's a, a way for our listeners to get in touch with you or find you online, what would it be? Absolutely. Um, I'm out on LinkedIn, Cami Greif. And um, if you have questions or thoughts, feel free to reach out. Thank you so much for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, Ryan. You have a great day. Man, I hope you enjoyed that interview as much as I did with Cami. She and her team did some amazing things. Not only is tax season stressful in itself, but to be able to do the tax season, build a business, take on the different challenges that they did is is nothing short of amazing. I know the couple big things that I took away from Cami's interview is how they utilize the private equity firm to de-risk and then use that firm 
with the right intentions and the right terms and conditions and the right control to take their business to the next level and how they were able to do things that they wouldn't have been able to do had they been 100% owner still. It sounded like an amazing relationship that they had with them and they wouldn't have been able to grow and to innovate as much as they would have without the partner. So I think how they approached the multiple step transition and how they went through the intentionality of selling their company from the very beginning is something that everybody needs to take note because if you know that, hey, you know what, I wanna sell to H&R Block and you're gonna strive towards Towards that, what's the worst case scenario? Well, you sell to a private equity firm for a bunch of money and then can continue on your journey. So I think having some set goals of who you want to sell to and why with a time frame in line, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to do that, but it helps you keep your ship in order and it helps you focus on the fact that the goal is to make money and to strive and to grow in certain areas because of the end goal. And that should back in all the different strategic goals that you're accomplishing. So I really hope you took some serious gold nuggets out of the interview with Cami and go on to iTunes. Please give us a rating and I'll see you next week.